Welcome to Breaking the Bias. This podcast is designed as a collection of conversations with sales and marketing leaders from across our industry, shining a light and sharing stories of workplace empowerment. Welcome to this episode of Breaking the Bias. Today, I'm joined by Tony Allen, Executive Director of the Institute of Engineering and Technology. Tony, fantastic to have you with us. Thanks, Alicia. Really happy to be here. Tony, you've had a really interesting career. Love the space that you're working in. And I think you've got a really interesting role at IET. It'd be great if you could just kick us off with, with a bit about you, your, your career and brought you to, to your current role. Yeah, thank you. So I really have been a, a, a career marketer for 23 years now, um, literally university and, and straight into marketing roles and, and have worked the, the full gambit really from public relations and comms to digital to content to strategic marketing uh, and then into sales commercial roles and and uh, really where I sit now is more in that transformation space uh, and, and trying to encourage uh, marketing to really be uh, the brains of the business um, and to encourage the reach across marketing to be recognised in a business. You know, it's not just about brochures and balloons, as we all know nowadays. It really is about data and insight and customer journeys and sales enablement and, and account-based marketing and all, all the, you know, the, the real 360 hub of marketing and what it can do for revenue generation. I'm very lucky. I've spent most of my time uh, working globally across all regions, Asia-Pac, EMEA, South and, and uh, North America. Um, I'm very happy now to run the Indian and China offices uh, for the IET with, with the international operations out there. I'm sure having worked globally across various roles and now in your international leadership role as well as your marketing role, you must have quite a diverse experience in, in working with different different cultures, different um, geographies. What, what have you learned through through that experience? What, what, what have you taken away? Oh, huge amounts. I'm learning every day. You know, it, it's so important. Culture across a global organization is hugely important. Um, and it means different things to different people, you know, depending on their background and their ethnicity and their gender and, and, and you know, really where they are. And I'm a big fan of global, you know, make sure we have a global understanding, but really a local nuance and really listen to the markets because we can't be so bold wherever your head office sits. You know, ours sits in the UK, but of course, you know, head offices sit all over the world, but it can't be, uh, you know, head office is right. We have to listen to the markets, listen to the people on the ground and really understand the cultural nuance of, you know, product, service and customers. So, so crucial. Fantastic. And what's your, in joining this podcast, would love to get your take on you know, what, what does the break breaking the bias mean for you? Personally, you've had a fantastic career to, to this point and, you know, huge, as you look ahead, you've got a huge opportunity ahead of you as well. Um, what, what does breaking the bias mean, Tony? Yeah, so actually a great deal. Uh, I did my dissertation way back in, uh, you know, many years around uh, women in the glass ceiling. That that would have always had a huge interest in that and and. I remember reading about that, you know, in the late nineties and, and kind of going, well, that's fantastic. You know, it's, it's, it, how can that be? You know, like how, it's not when I say fantastic, I mean, fantastical, you know, it, it, I couldn't get my head around it, that there was this perceived barrier. 
I certainly had never felt it in in my growing up. And and so I remember doing my dissertation, interviewing 200 women of middle management and senior management and saying, does this exist? You know, what is this glass ceiling? So throughout my career, it's been incredibly important to me to be a role model for others in the organization, women especially, but it's been really important to make sure that I'm using my position as I've managed to climb up the ladder to encourage others to seek, you know, their place, uh, the rightful place in the workspace and to really be a champion and an ally. And um, it's it's crucial because actually it takes everybody to break the bias. It is about stopping this proliferation of you know, the way we speak about women in particular and gender, you know, I'm focusing on gender here, but there is, of course, many protected characteristics that we, you know, need to speak differently about and become allies to. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm very pleased and privileged to be the Exec Director for Equality, Diversity and Inclusion in the engineering and, and technology space for the Institution of Engineering and Technology. But for me, it's always been about championing diverse thoughts, uh, diverse people, and really just stopping people from continuing these, these conversations that are not helping to break the bias. Was there a, a moment in your, whether it was at the point of doing the dissertation that you touched on, or a moment in your career to, to this point that's had, the, I guess, the biggest impact or effect on how you think about diversity and inclusion? I think there's probably three moments. Um, I think when you're navigating your early career, you're just really, you know, you, you get stuck in and you're. it's really uh, important for you to learn. And, you know, I suppose every day is a bit of a school day. You're really trying to navigate who you learn from and, and, and you find those people that you look up to, don't you? You know, you go, oh, God, I want to be like her or them or, you know. And, and so uh, I remember particularly in my early career, there was a, a fantastic uh, guy, actually, uh, and we're talking very early career, who was just so good at representing real diverse views and always bringing people into the room and championing and uh, really if somebody was to say something that was causing a, a challenge you could see you know where people are uncomfortable he'd call it out immediately so I say you know come on that's a bit unfair everybody's allowed a voice and 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 that kind of made me really look up to him and think actually I want to be a person that mentors and coaches and gives everybody a voice and and so for me that that from a career point of view was one point but I think as I've got into my career I have had like many others those times when you know you've got that promotion and somebody's given the you know a bit of fun bit of ribbing but oh who do I have to sleep with to get a promotion and while on the face of it you know you laugh it off actually you kind of have that bit in the back of your mind that goes no I did this fairly and equally and you know that you've just devalued that um and so you know it 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 kind of takes you into that different space where you kind of go if I don't laugh it off then you know somebody's gonna take that you know as oh no no I didn't mean it and 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 feel 
uncomfortable but now you just I suppose you know you call it out I call it out (laughs) and then I think the final bit is absolutely being holding the 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 stick for diversity and inclusion for the IET it's opened up a world not just for engineering technology for me it's been so important to learn about not just the, the the boxes we put people in but intersectionality it's not it's not a space where it's a one size fits all if you fall into the neurodiversity box or you fall into the ethnicity box it is so important to recognize that people have many many boxes that they're in every day and to truly represent diversity and inclusion we have to understand uh, not just you know people's diversity, but how they need to be included, and the boxes, many boxes that they feel that that they fit fit within. Really interesting. We'd love love to unpack a little bit about the um, the, the role that you're taking in terms of diversity and inclusion for the the institute. Can you talk me a little bit through what you're doing? What does it look like? What are some of the key initiatives that you're running? Um, how you approach DNI? Of course, yeah. So. Um, We've been lucky enough at the Institution of Engineering and Technology to uh, be a a very multidisciplinary home for engineering, particularly. Uh, Although our roots are in electrical engineering, we are very proud that in our 150th year, we were actually the first uh, what we call a professional engineering institution to uh, be the the first to offer a, a woman electrical engineer a membership so it goes right back to you know uh, our heartland and our heritage that uh, women in engineering is is has been key for us but you look at today's landscape and actually look and if you just focus on engineering for a moment you know technology has got a, a, a similar landscape but there are still only 16 percent of engineering globally uh, the engineers that are women and when you're looking at race and culture, particularly BAME, there are only 9% of engineers. So it's not good enough. And if you think about the diversity of thought needed to solve societal challenges of tomorrow, like sustainability, digital futures, engineers are so, so crucial to that. And so therefore, if we need that diversity of thought and we need that innovation, then we need more people. We need more diverse people. And and so stats like 16% and 9% are just not good enough. So it's our role to build out awareness, to champion diversity across all protected characteristics, but also to really include some, some key campaigns. So our key campaign in, in the past was... Back then, it was 9% is not good enough 10 years ago, and it's great we're at 16%, but we're going to keep banging that drum. We're going to keep making sure that we act as a guardian and a stalwart for uh, diversity and engineering. That's one of our our key roles. And when you think about your role in terms of uh, DNI, are you mostly running initiatives and campaigns like that out to industry, or are you also directly affecting... The, the, the rest of the organization absolutely it's got to be the the internal landscape and the external landscape so externally we've been very good at uh, really trying to develop those conversations uh, we run our young women engineers uh, award every year we are part of the uh, lgbtq plus 
forums. We uh, support both socio-economic or lower socio-economic and cultural uh, organisations in in trying to reach those parts of the the globe where you know sometimes you don't get engineers from because they're not necessarily the top leagues or in the top colleges or, or universities. So we really are about the engineering for everybody, but. We spent a lot of time facing outwards, and while we have some fantastic forums internally, what we didn't know was a lot about the data of our diversity and inclusion, and and so we've spent the last couple of years really focusing in on anonymized data and understanding our internal teams and their need and desires for diversity and inclusion and really starting to build that out, not just across our internal teams, but our volunteering pool. We have 4,400 volunteers globally that we treat as, you know, one team working. So we're just about to enter into an anonymized survey for our volunteers. So we can really start to understand the foundations and the benchmarks around, you know, are we doing better in the organization are we being more diverse and certainly uh, certainly at our board level our board of trustee level this year for the first time we had a 50 50 split for gender and last year we had our first second sorry female president and i think actually next year we're going to have a, a, a actually a split more towards women. But, you know, we, we actually recognise a lot of uh, other characteristics in our board of trustees also. And, you know, so it's crucial that the organisation sees that and that, and then we do that within the organisation. Fantastic to hear you going full circle and um, at, at your organisation now, truly breaking the glass ceiling with that 50-50 split at, at right, right to the board level. That's fantastic to hear. Tony, you touched on this as you were talking about some of the campaigns um, that you run externally and just some of the percentage figures not being good enough. And we've spoken about um, engineering and tech really struggling to get, I guess, people who are going through learning pathways, actually entering the workforce for those two sectors um, what, why do you think that is? What's the what's the reason for that drop off? Given how many engineering degrees women earn and, and actually then don't go on to enter the workforce? Yeah, I mean, there's still. I think if you ask anybody at uni at the moment, there's still not enough women coming through the the degrees, and I think there is just in general uh, a, a big challenge around graduates coming into industry and. Uh, feeling like they can go into industry being equipped. So we're doing a lot of work around uh, industry into universities. And in fact, I was out in uh, Dubai last week. We just launched our UAE skills survey, which talked about there is this huge skills gap, as there is in the UK and Dubai uh, and the UAE. And that is because that industry is not seeing that necessarily graduates are equipped to hit the ground running when they get into industry and that's because they're they're not getting that industry experience so there's that part to it but i think there's also a break point there is highly competitive there's uh, a lot of people that kind of you know as you know many many uh, graduates go and do the degree and then they decide to go into something else so you know we're trying to encourage people right down the pipeline it's not just about um, when you do your GCSEs or when you do your A-levels and, and think about STEM as a career, 
we know through uh, studies that it starts off from the age of four and five. That's when kids decide that STEM is for them. That's when they really understand their interests and start to play in curiosity and look at science, technology, engineering and maths. And it's that pipeline that we have to feed all the way through to university and graduation, but not only in in, in degrees, that has to be in apprenticeships and te- technicians also. Um, we, we have to make sure that those that do not want degrees are able to have those apprenticeship and, and technician routes. And that's why it's not always about the triple badge science. And I suppose one thing to mention, you know, if anybody's sons or daughters or or any anybody that's listening to this is interesting in engineering technology is about that love and passion and that that really understanding there's many many routes not just one route in the past engineering was seen as you know you have to get straight a's at science and maths otherwise you can't be an engineer well i know lots of people that have come to engineering later on and worked on the job and really loved it and gone on to do degrees later so you know what we're trying to do is open the roots and what's your experience been in terms of actual retention of diverse talent in in the sector so uh, you know, one of the bugbears that, that I have and, and I've seen is just how individuals develop in organisations and, and having access to um, building this, this, the skills they need to also progress and get ahead. What what does that look like from your experience? Yeah, it, it's really interesting because I think if you look at who we might class as successful, and I'd say we as in, you know, society or industry, it isn't just a, a a one size proposition. You don't find that it all falls down to industry. It is a broader sense of people find their skills in, in, in both technical and soft skills and in skills outside, such as their networks and peer groups. And I think, you know, it's a huge mixture that makes people kind of recognize their value. And I think when you do that and you step outside of maybe your just your industry or your employer and you start to build those networks and that value, sometimes when you go back into that employer, you kind of go, well, why aren't you giving me the same opportunity? You know, I'm kind of out here speaking about stuff uh, on, on stages, yet I go into my place of work and I'm not valued or I'm not considered experienced enough or old enough or white enough or black enough for for a promotion it's got to be that people are really given their development pathways on their own merit and not just because of you know well we consider that you now are able to step up and we're seeing so much more of that in uh you know i hate using the term gen z but i'm going to use it but in the younger age groups we see so much more where they're kind of going i'm i'm actually i'm ready for the next job i'm ready much quicker you know it used to be maybe two three years turnaround i want my manager job you know in 18 months and it's sometimes that's right and sometimes it's actually let me help you get more experience to get there but we have to make sure those feedback mechanisms are in there and not just this old school 
view of no I'm sorry you're too young to do that job or you're too inexperienced to do that job and and I've certainly suffered from that in the past where people have said to me well you're only xyz age how could you have that experience and uh, I don't believe that you know (laughs) it's like well okay because you've pegged me you know (laughs) Yes, it goes back to the point you made right at the uh, the start of the episode around being treated fairly and equally, um, but on on your your merits as opposed to you know, how many years have you been doing this versus your capability and skill set. Yeah, yeah, and that's so yeah. that's becoming much more hopefully much more present. Um, and sometimes I think where it isn't present, well, it employees you know speak with their feet. And just broadly speaking, thinking about the engineering and, and tech sectors that you're operating in, how are the two different um, from a diversity point of view? What what have you seen? Yeah, I suppose it's interesting because they, they run quite parallel in certain aspects. I mean, gender diversity is still a big challenge in both. Uh, I don't think the tech stats are very much more than the engineering stats, actually. And uh, I was... I, fascinated to see uh, I think it was the some cybersecurity office or a, an office that was on a a zoom call on on the news the other day and you look around the table and all of them were white men you know of a certain age and you kind of go actually who is really you know bringing women up and and it, it's fascinating when you look at places like Saudi, for example, and Saudi where uh, women are recently only allowed to drive, and now they have got a huge, huge diversity drive for women in tech. And and now you look at a very different world of Saudi and a very different world of, of tech boardrooms. And, you know, I think as any country globally, we need to look at those countries that are doing it really well and ask what are they doing so that, you know, there is a global move to change uh, things like particularly gender in, in tech, but obviously, you know, diversity in general. Yeah. Which, which countries do you think are really getting it right and what are they doing differently? Well, what was uh, fascinating about being out in Dubai last week is one of the questions we asked them as part of the skills survey was, do you have a challenge with gender diversity or do you have a challenge with diversity in general? And I think the first uh, question around gender, uh, the answer was 83% said no. And for the second, uh, diversity in general, 87% said no. Uh, And we gathered a round table of industry, academia, private engineering institutions, government uh, practitioners, and all of them said that's because the UAE have really focused in the last 10 years at driving diversity and made a conscious decision to do that. And so our response was, great, you need to be more bullish about this story. You need to be acting as a case study to the rest of the world. So, you know, there are some places in there. I mean, for example, Egypt has a 50-50 split in engineering. There isn't an issue with gender in, in engineering. So there are some fantastic opportunities to learn from 
countries uh, that are getting it right. Yeah. What What do you think they're um, specifically doing differently, though, to encourage so many more women to enter these industries that some of the you know, other countries that you think would be more progressive uh, are not doing? Is it access? Yes. Learning is into the workforce. What What's really driving that? Yeah, I don't think there's one silver bullet. It's about absolute collaboration. It's about making sure that the universities are promoting that gender equality and that diversity. You know, it's about making sure that the industry recognises the importance of hiring women and promoting women and getting women in the boardrooms. And I think it goes all the way right down to women and girls in STEM. You know, the more women and girls that we can have in STEM education and then on to uh, employee, early career, mid-career, late career, it's, it's, it's brilliant. But it's what we have to do. It's the long-term game. It's not a, a, a short game. And uh, the UAE are starting to prove that now, really focusing on far more than 10 years. But the last 10 years has been a real, real shift. Um They've got a plan out to 2071, you know, so when you're looking at that long term drive, you're kind of going, okay, well, you know, maybe a few other countries should have some real long term plans for diversity. Yeah, really fascinating. So I'd I'd heard the um, the 10 year ago stat that you mentioned around um, women being able to to drive, um, but I hadn't heard some of the data points that you've touched on uh, around this these particular industries. What what advice, Tony, would you have for women um, in in these sectors, in engineering and, and tech, um, that perhaps don't work in Egypt or, or um, the UAE, um, to to really, I guess, achieve their full potential? Yeah, I think. Um... I can't speak for myself being an engineer, but but having heard the voices of many women in engineering, um, it has really been to, you know, make sure that their their passion and their curiosity and their love for engineering is felt not just in their workplace, but joining networks and getting themselves out of, uh, you know, just a... The office so to speak and, and and really engaging with lots and lots of different areas of engineering um, our young women engineers are a formidable bunch I mean they are absolutely fascinating in the fact that Ella Podmore who won uh, the year before last was uh, is McLaren's first ever materials engineer working on race cars at the age of you know 24 we've got uh, the our, our recent winner Dr Cara is is working in space on space stations and so on and these are all young women early 20s who have formidable backgrounds and they haven't just done that through their employment they've done it through championing and mentoring and having role models and I think you know it's a classic case is you know what you see you can be so for us it's so important to make sure these women are promoted 
and that other women, other girls can see them. And there's a brilliant example, a good friend of mine, um, her niece is a ballet dancer and she saw on Facebook Ella with these McLaren cars and the stuff that she is doing. And uh, she said to my friend, oh my God, I've seen this amazing girl, you know, this little girl's 14. And I want to be like her. I want to be an engineer. I don't want to be a ballet dancer. I want to be an engineer that does ballet dancing. And Naomi said, oh, that's, you know, that my friend Tony, uh, her company did that campaign. And she said, oh my God, I just need to speak to them about how I can get into engineering. So, you know, it's it's those sort of things that what you see you can be. And, and if you think about engineering in hard hat and high vis, that's not the world, you know. Yeah, I love I love that takeaway that what you see you can be. I think there's so much around, you know, the more exposure and access you, you can provide um, a really, really good takeaway. And Tony, just shifting gears from engineering and tech for, for a second, you've worked in other industries. What What's your experience been like? Has it been the same or different? I would say varied, if I'm honest. You know, I think when you're looking at different industries, it very much depends on you get you get a culture, I guess, that, that you might step into. Or, you know, when we're talking about engineering technology, you understand that there's certain foibles about certain industries. So I've been very lucky to work in some very forward thinking industries. And I've been very lucky to be part of, I guess, you know, innovating and, and, and driving those industries. But I've also had experience of being in some real old school industries where you kind of step in and go, oh, you know, this needs to change quite quickly. And you recognise that is going to be like moving the tanker. So, you know, when you're, when you're in those things, it, you have to have that agility to speed up or slow down, depending on, on the culture of the business. But, but also, it's been very interesting. I, you know, I'm able to take my experiences of certain areas or cultures to kind of, kind of go, okay, how, how do we navigate this? Or what are the things that I've learned from different industries that they do really well? So, you know, when you're talking about things like communication or engagement surveys and real, really understanding the customer, internal and external, you know, that's something I've, I've held across all industries, but really took from my agency background and really understanding that kind of fast moving consumer goods world where, you know, okay, the customer isn't always right, but the customer is king. And, um, and and that should be no different, whether you're moving from a, a, a B2C world or a B2B world. It's exactly the same nowadays. Um, there isn't B2B as rational and B2C as emotional. It's, it, it, it's no difference now. So, um, yeah, I think for me, it's really being able to, to take that real diverse knowledge and, and, and from different industries and, and, and bring in that kind of fresh eye approach to a new industry. I think the only industry I haven't worked in yet has been financial services. So <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> One day, maybe. Yeah, it sounds like you've got the full breadth. Um, what, what, what would you do differently, Tony? You've got obviously some great experience. You've um, climbed the career ladder. You know, I, I loved hearing about your, your, your experience and uh, particularly your focus on, on D&I, just reflecting back, were there any moments that you think would have liked to have done this or, um, you know, almost advice that you'd give to yourself if you rewound back 10 years ago? Yeah, I've been really lucky, I think, in my career to take on some fantastic,
fantastic roles where I've gone in as almost a consultant and then they've grown into roles and I've I've, I've carried on. I, I like to call it in some aspects the Nanny McPhee syndrome where I've been able to go in and it looks a bit ugly and I've kind of been in and, you know, supported that turnaround and it looks you know it's the warts are gone and so on and then I've been able to move on so so that's been really good but honestly I think for me it's I spent so long trying to kind of build my career and go in and out of different uh, industries and learn and and I suppose a little bit like you know the magpie effect oh it's really shiny over here that's really interesting let's go and have a look over here that as I've got through my career actually I really value the importance of that kind of long-term view. And I suppose the the second part of that is having the confidence earlier on in my career to kind of go, actually, I can really do this. I can, I can stay in the role and be valued and step up in the role without the feeling like I won't be valued unless I go and do this and get this experience or now I need to get this experience, you know. So it, it I think for me, it, it was like, it was great. It's really, I think, helped me to be that real all-round uh, marketer and commercial person. But I think when I look back, sometimes I kind of go, hmm, what would have happened if I'd have just stuck in, you know, a particular technical area like PR or like content, you know, uh, would have been a different space. So I don't think I regret that at all. I don't think I regret it. But I think, um, yeah, I was so, and I think this does come from being, it's purely a lack of confidence that, oh God, I feel like I've been in a role too long. If I was there two, three years, I need to move. I need to people to see that I'm agile and I can do a lot of things. Um, And that's not always the case. You know, it's not, not always what people look for. We've talked a little bit about role modelling and um, that strap line about what, what you see you can be. Uh, and I know you mentor for the Chartered Institute of Marketing as, as well. What inspired you to, to get involved in mentoring? Yeah, I think it's really important to give back. And um, I think as you are, you know, climbing that ladder or, or doing whatever you want with the career, I think it's good to have uh, an ear to be able to um speak to people that have had that experience and I've always reached out and I I you know one piece of advice I'd always give is if you don't necessarily have roots through like the Child Institute of Marketing or or another professional body just reach out to somebody that you admire on LinkedIn and ask the question would we have be able to have a discussion or would you enter into a mentoring relationship because I think the more mentors the more experience you get from others even just having an hour conversation about somebody's you know route to their career is is fascinating and helps others so for me it's really about giving back and if I can helping people to navigate their next decision um I really enjoy coaching but you know coaching and mentoring for me are very well they are very different you know it's the the three hats leadership coaching mentoring and so for mentoring it's 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 only as good as the person you know gets value from so sometimes it's a mentoring session for you know three months sometimes you know I've mentored people for a year 18 months and actually I've got a session after our conversation today so I, I find it fascinating people's people's kind of their their desires and and what they want to gain and take from 
uh, a mentor, but also how can I help them and how can I be an advocate for them and help them in, in you know, introducing them to my network or, or giving advice. So I, I love that. Absolutely. I think just that I, a lot of people when they're starting to look for a mentor don't know where to look but I love love that tip of find someone that inspires you and, and reach out to them on LinkedIn I think you know more and more people are uh, see, see value that they get in um, giving out and giving back to, uh, through mentoring but also I'm sure you must take a lot from the process yourself and you, you, you've obviously um, embedded that into your own personal development yeah I mean I learn a huge amount and I love the you know the reverse mentoring and I always ask for feedback and sort of say you know well how did that go for you what can I do differently you know is there something you want to focus on next time and I always give them a challenge I always sort of say you know next time we speak go and have had this conversation or maybe go and think about this a bit differently and then come back and you know so it, it, yeah they they get a bit of homework <laughs> so just to finish us off and bring us full circle you've interviewed over 200 women as part of your dissertation a few few years ago um you've come a, a long way what are you most proud of when it comes to what you've achieved through diversity and inclusion i think i'm i'm most proud of continuing to recognize that you know how I felt as I was going through my career and and trying not to forget that and trying to really championing people at all places in their career and and, and no matter where they are in in their organizations but I think ultimately you know going back to kind of my first uh, mentor so to speak it, it is about you know making sure that you are fair and and equal and 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 you know fostering that culture of inclusion and um, I hope personally that any team that I'm within uh, will recognize that and, and and say that and for me that would be the biggest accolade that, that they could say you know not she was a brilliant marketer or you know anything else but actually yeah absolutely she, she made us really feel valued and included and she championed us brilliant i've really enjoyed the conversation thank you for sharing so candidly tony and you're looking forward to seeing you very soon thanks alicia really enjoyed it thank you tony this podcast is brought to you by momentum the global growth consultancy a female-owned business brimming with incredible female talent we're actively striving to close the gender gap you can learn more at wearemomentum.com